Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Michael Zalavari, and today I'm going to be taking you through a little bit of a slice of my Bathurst 12-hour experience. Now, this year at the Bathurst 12-hour, it was actually my first time attending as ticketed media. Uh, in the past four years, I've gone as a fan at the event and camped at the top of the mountain, but this year I was lucky enough to do some work for a daily sports car. So that was a very enthralling experience for me and I got a lot out of it. Uh, but it was also amazing to be in the media center and in the paddock with all of these personalities and drivers and team managers that I'd known through watching sports cars and reading about sports cars for the last five years. Um, as I did last year when I interviewed Graham Goodwin, I was lucky enough to get the chance to catch up with one of the major names in sports cars over the course of the weekend uh, and interact with them on a face-to-face -face basis. So uh, Johnny Palmer of Radio Le Mans uh, was actually generous enough to give me an hour of his time on the Thursday before the start of track action on Friday. And so we sat down in the, the race between the media center and the podium uh, and we had a bit of a chat about his experience as a broadcaster in motorsport, some of the events that he's done, and finally wrapping back around to this year's Bathurst 12-hour. Now, it was a little bit noisy. We didn't get a chance to use the commentary box as we did last year because it was still being set up. So there's a little bit of noise from uh, just the atrium of the media center. But on the whole, I really, really enjoyed this chat with Johnny Palmer, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as well. So without further ado, here is my chat with Johnny Palmer. I'm here now with Johnny Palmer of Radio Le Mans. Uh, Johnny, firstly, welcome back to Australia. Thank you. Um, it's your third Bathurst 12 hour here, if I recall correctly. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're part of the uh, voices of endurance racing for a lot of fans around the world, um, being a major part of Radio Le Mans. Uh, how did your journey start to get from a fan of motorsports or a fan of radio into Radio Le Mans and now as a part of the commentary team for the Bathurst 12 hour? Um, well, I suppose it started when I was a very young boy, sort of, I don't know, seven, eight years old, taken to live, live racing events uh, with my dad, who was a big car fan. Um, and I was always into cars, model cars, little matchbox cars we had in the UK, I'm sure worldwide as well. Um, and then actually going to see a motor race with 30, 40 cars in it. And actually at the time we had an Alpha Sud. My dad's a big alcoholic and I've become one as well. Nice. And Mallory Park, when a club meeting had 35 Alpha Suds on the grid, they were all our car basically. <laughs> I thought this is just unbelievable. But I also, used to watch things like the rally report of the of the WOC and specifically the rally rally GB as it was then Lombard's rally GB um, and grandstand which was the Saturday afternoon sports show yeah. in England used to show uh, certainly British touring car championships so that was late 80s and then into the 90s proper super touring era yeah and I think at times we also had a very tight packaged show of the Bathurst thousand kilometers that was either on World of Sport or Grandstand but I remember watching those races particularly Bathurst and thought this cannot be a real track <laughs> it just they've made it up even it was before computer generated yeah. imagery yeah. but I just thought this is bonkers and I sort of had an idea of where Australia was at that tender age 
never dreamt I would actually be able to go and see it. And that was the multi-class era of the thousand yes. Ks, you know, so you'd have races within races. Um, but whenever there was motorsport on TV, and this was well ahead of Sky and, you know, uh, extra TV channels, I'm talking about the basic four channels that we have in the UK, and you'd get very little motorsport, but the opportunity to watch it, and I would be there, yeah. you know, face right in front of the TV. Um, Just quickly, do you know the, the history of how this track came about? I know that it was a, obviously big mountain side, yeah. and they wanted to test cars, I think. So they built a really tricky track to, mm. to take a production car up there um, and test it out. And I think, did it not be, was it not a time trial place before motor racing? Um, it, but you can educate me. It, it could, could very well be. The story that I know is that the mayor of the town wanted to bring uh, some sort of racing competition to, to Bathurst. Yeah. Um, and so they, he built the Scenic Road, which is Mount Panorama Scenic Drive, which is the Bathurst Mount Panorama circuit. And they said, well, now that we've got this Scenic Road here, we might as well just run cars on it and race cars on it. So that's the story that I've been told. Yeah. And it's a pretty brilliant race to, uh, place to watch race cars. It, it makes sense as a scenic road mm. if you're intending just to run one car around at the time. But the thing I like about it is, is it's sort of outgrown itself. And, you you know, the, the fact that you can have two or three abreast over Brock Skyline and into the next section of track where you can barely see it. I mean, I've just done a lap, actually, a little bit sneaky. John Heinhoff and I went round um, and... I'm reminded of how many blind corners there are, how narrow and tight it is in certain places, and zero margin for error. Mm. And yeah, as a as a ten year old, to be introduced to this place, not have a clue where it was in the world, and I didn't think in those days I would get to come here, uh, was just mouth watering. Um, so it was to answer your question. Yeah. That's quite a long answer, but it, <laughs> it, it, it was sown very early on. And I don't think my dad quite realised he was paving a career for his son here because it was just an interest. For, and he still has the interest now. Um, but, yeah, I, and then gradually, you know, my interest has way overtaken his. Yeah. And I can educate him now on the current sports car scene or the tin top scene or the single-seater scene. And, um, and I'm just motorsport throughout, but generally cars rather than bikes. Yeah. But, you know, if they're racing it, if they're racing against the, the clock or against each other, I'm in. Fantastic. So when was the, the first races that you started to get into in, in sports cars starting to get into broadcasting? Yeah, um, well, that is something I've had to learn on the job. Although I appreciated the all the extra bits that come with sports car racing, sharing a car, being able to maintain pace over a 6-hour, 12-hour, 24-hour period. Yeah. That, I think, is, is a sort of more mature motorsport whereby you, you, you've seen the sprint racing you've seen the 10 lap formula ford yeah. races and then you in my case you gra gravitate into then uh it's like i suppose it's like reading a kind of kid's book which grabs your attention because you know 40 odd formula fours going through paddock hill bend at brown Tatch, you don't really need to know a lot about motorsport because it just hits all senses whereas then you read into like a, a really interesting novel where there are stories interweaved with stories. And I think you can only understand endurance and sports car racing after a couple of seasons working at it, because you know then the personalities, you know the teams and their characteristics, what makes Audi Audi, for instance, yep. and what it did for the best part of a decade at Le Mans. But my first time at Le Mans, I'm, I'm unlike Graham Goodwin, who I know you've interviewed in the past, in that he used to go to Le Mans as a fan yep. and stand on the fence and just love it and think how can i get involved whereas my interest and involvement in motorsport was elsewhere 
and I got involved with, uh, with John and Eve who, who look after Radio Show Limited and they invited me to Le Mans in 2008. Oh, so have you never been, never been to Le Mans as a fan? No. no. <laughs> wow, that, I know. that must be uh, unique in, in, the, in, the, in the press room there um, to some extent. Yeah. Possibly. I, I mean, Shay Adam, who I work with, I know that she'd never been to Le Mans prior to working here, but she's, you know, she doesn't live as close to Le Mans as I do in the UK. She comes all the way from Florida. So I kind of have no excuse, <laughs> and I admit that, you know, it, it's a short trip across the English Channel and four hours drive from Calais to get down there. I used to read the reports, uh, you know, I, uh, 10, 15 years ago, subscribe, still do subscribe to Motorsport News, yeah. used to get Autosport through the, through the letterbox as well, and there were the reports of Le Mans and of the Spa 24 and of Nürburgring 24. Um, but I suppose I didn't really have friends, mates who would go with me yeah. to to experience it. And you know, it's like it's like obscure music albums. You kind of need a mate yeah. to go. This is a really good album, and you listen. You may listen to it together, or someone will give you a tip off. And I was just tending to just read the reports and kind of go, well, these look quite interesting cars, but I don't know anything about them. Mm. And I would go back to my touring car racing because I've always admitted I'm, I'm a, basically a touring car fan initially and that's still my main love um but i i got into endurance racing and that has become my new little favorite i yeah. suppose uh, and it, yeah it, talking to you people like you i it's almost like i'm an endurance specialist and that okay. sounds quite weird to me yeah yeah because I, i've had to really work at it to get there but um that's that's having people showing faith in me from an early age and uh you know educated me along the way you listen back to some of the stuff i did in 08 which i mean i wasn't even part of the main on-air crew in 08 yeah. i used to do the hourly update that appeared at the bottom of every hour I used to read that out from a sheet of paper but I mean, graham used to put, kind of pull me aside after i did each one and kind of go oh by the way johnny uh, i don't know who was racing those it's it's sebastian bourdais not bourdet bourdais yeah. whatever you know because i was mispronouncing everything yeah. but he was so great in those days and he would he realized i think there was a bit of talent there but it was about nurturing it um and i feel like every le mans because that's our biggest audience that's our biggest gig of the year yeah. every le mans there's notable improvement from me but i'm drawing i'm drawing on 10 years of experience mm. and I, that's what i mean about having worked at it you can go, oh, right, okay, like there's an instance in a race and you go, oh, this reminds me of 2013 or yeah. 2011 or whatever. So the more you do, the better you become. It's the same with everything in life. Really. So there's still things in the 12 years that you've been doing the mine or 12 years that you've been doing other race commentary that surprise you or throw you off? We were having this conversation about motorsport yeah. the other day uh, at Daytona. And I think motorsport, more so than any other sport, that is played around the world is the most unpredictable okay. because you know motorsports we don't like it to happen outside of the boundaries but sometimes you know cars leave tracks sometimes we have uh, scenarios where you know there's an infringement and sometimes the officials go okay this is really complicated what on earth do we do now about knowing the regulations but when you write a set of uh, sporting regulations for a championship you're having to deal with the unpredictable nature yeah. of racing, and there are going there are going to be instances where literally something's never been seen before. I mean, one of the famous ones in British GT quite recently at Rockingham was um, 
there was a there was a regular there was a caution there was a yeah. regulation that uh, the safety car has to pick up the leader fine the problem was the leader had been given an in-race penalty of 30 seconds okay right so you've got matt griffin in a ferrari who is the leader on the road but of course matt had been given a track limit penalty so it was actually sixth so you imagine behind the safety car safety car picks up the leader and then they look at the time machine and go i know that car's not leading anymore. yeah it's down in sixth waving past so they wave matt griffin through into a 40 second lead wow and you think well they've never thought about this in sporting regulations because obviously picking up the leader doesn't work when the leader on the road has been given a time penalty and is now sixth place so You've always got to rewrite things, I suppose, when those little scenarios come along. And it's only when they happen you go, oh, we didn't think about that. Yeah. So unpredictable nature. I don't think I'm ever going to get to a point where I say I've seen everything in racing. Yeah. That's just not possible because there's always going to be a scenario uh, that is brand new. Yeah. Cool. Um, so as we made mention of earlier, this is your third Bathurst 12 hour. Uh, You've done the Bathurst Daytona double each of those times, if mm -hmm. I recall correctly. Yeah. So how does uh, how does that travel trip rate amongst the travel that you do around the world? Uh, there's nothing quite like that. I um, yeah, I was introduced to the round the world ticket, whereby <laughs> I leave the UK in a westerly direction and don't stop until I'm home. So yeah. you just keep going round and. Um, the thing about you know, the thing about planes is you get up to a certain height and you're above water, and uh, there's not a lot to interest you <laughs> apart from the films on board and, and hopefully a bit of good company as well. Uh, but I think the thing for me, it's the right way round. If I had to do Bathurst and then Daytona, no, you know, dis no disregard, no disrespect to Daytona, but for me, this is the big race of of this time of year. Okay, I still think in. In my personal opinion, this is the best racetrack. Bathurst is the best racetrack in the world, bar none. Um, so when you're in the middle of Daytona, mm -hmm. late at night, three, four in the morning, the race has settled down, it's into a bit of a rhythm. And you think, oh, I could really do with that chequered flag now, but it's one forty tomorrow afternoon. The thing that drives me on is the fact that I know I'm coming here. Oh, that's cool. Particularly last year when it was just a horrendous race at Daytona, lashing it down with rain i mean i don't work in the pits and mm. you know other people on our team had it far worse than i did because i'm in a nice dry generally warm commentary box mm. uh, but if you remember they were they were touring around under safety, the safety car, car yeah. then they red flagged it and then poor old fernando alonso and the rest of the guys kamu kobayashi were just sort of sitting around waiting for a result mm. and that's not the way we want to see a motor race come to, a, to come to an end but I knew I was coming here in a week, so it was all good by the by the end of it. Yeah. So is the the trip from Daytona to Bathurst is that the longest trip you do as a presenter as a broadcaster? Yeah. Yeah. By far. Yeah. Yeah. So how like what are the other big trips that you do? Because once you get back into Europe, it's basically the European season, and you don't really need to move around that no, much. Yeah. No. Um, although I, I get a bit bored by planes and the fact that you just go up in the clouds and then come back down again. So I I quite like investigating bits of Europe that I may not get to go to otherwise. So my trip to Monza for the European Le Mans series race uh, last year was quite interesting because I did it all by train, yeah. by land. So um, there was an overnight stop just shy of the Swiss border in Geneva and I went through Geneva and then around the lakes in Switzerland and down to Milan. And you get to see you get to see cities and towns that you wouldn't do when you just land in an airport pick up your rental car and just drive to the circuit, you know. 
when I chat to friends about the job that I do, they go, oh, that's amazing, you do so much travel. But actually, how much of, of the cities and the, and the culture are you soaking up? Very little of it. Yeah. But on that trip down to Monza, you know, I was able to kind of hear language slowly change because the dialect in the north of France is different from the south, and then you move into the Swiss French side, so yeah. it's the French-speaking area of Switzerland, then into German-speaking area of Switzerland, which is very different from proper Germany, and then slowly the, the Italian accent yeah. moves in. And, and it's just so good to slowly work your way down. It takes a long time. Mm. I mean, this was, what, three days I budgeted for to go down there and about the same to come back. But the, my commitments around that meeting just meant that I, I had a bit of free time to, to spend on my own, just realising, you know, what a great world we live in. That's beautiful. Uh, I, I'm a little jealous of that fact because for Australia, because it's so vast and quite empty, yeah. like uh, a three-day trip for me would be Adelaide to Bathurst and back yes. by car. Um, so, yeah, it's... I don't think uh, Europeans realise how privileged they are to have that mess of cultures so close by. Um, but you're, that's not the only train trip you've taken. I've uh, been been given a bit of a information, a bit of a stitch up from some of the other presenters that you, you love your trains. Don't I do, you? Yeah. yes. Um, it was a, the last year's Bathurst 12 I actually stuck around in Australia and did some tours through, was it Queensland? Uh, yeah. The trains area through there? Yeah. yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Well, that, I mean, that could have gone slightly better because at the time there was a huge cyclone. Oh, yeah. In. Yeah, that sounds like Australia. Yeah. So um, that meant my route from... Why did I go? Sydney up to Brisbane and then the flight Brisbane to Cairns. I actually thought about knocking that on the head because the fear was the, pl- the, the, the journey was running fine over the storm because you get into 36, 40,000 feet and mm. you're clear of a storm cloud. But my, my targeted area was Cairns and the, the problem was, can I get back from Cairns then down to Rockhampton and on yeah. to Brisbane? Because cause it was pretty... Was a cyclone. Filthy, yeah, yeah. Down, down at uh, ground level. Anyway, I decided to risk it, and I spent far longer in Cairns than I'd expected, but that's a beautiful place. Um, first train trip I did probably was the Caranda Railway, which runs from the centre of Cairns up to Caranda itself. Um, and then, I mean, that's, um, that's pretty warm north Queensland. Yeah. Tropical, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, the wildlife you get up there and some of the scenes and then I caught the cable car back again so yeah you can, you can buy it as a circular ticket so that was very cool and I spent uh, far as I say longer in Cairns than expected but I was kind of waiting for the weather to clear yeah realized the the, re- the train then wasn't going to run to Rockhampton as planned so I got a rental which was a Holden Commodore which is pretty cool unfortunately it's one of the modern Commodores oh, so the front wheel drive yeah yeah disappointed about that but there we are anyway that got me Pretty, pretty much to Rocky. From then, the tilt train was running, so I got caught the tilt train from Rockhampton down to Brisbane, which takes a day. Yeah. Uh, a couple of nights in Brisbane, Bris Vegas. Bris Vegas, it. yeah, that's what we call it. Yeah. Not really. Not really. Um, <laughs> People like to call it Bris Vegas, but yeah, I know. Yeah. I've been I've been to Brisbane before and, and really like that city. It's it's not as obvious of, uh, as Sydney and Melbourne might be for your kind of tourist, mm. you know, from other from foreign countries. Um, everyone's heard of Brisbane, but I don't think they, they realise the little gems that it's got. Yeah. Um, then another train, uh, Brisbane to Sydney, a few days there, down to Canberra, never been to your capital before, so that was quite cool. Mm. Mm. I realise it's a, you know, a day's worth and then you've done it, Yeah. but still, you know, I, 
I quite like how everything's neatly arranged yeah. and aligned, and you can stand at the top of the hill and see it all down in dead straight lines. Uh, and then on to Melbourne. And then I caught, now I always forget the name of this because there's the Indian Pacific, there's the GAN, and then there's the third. The Overlander? One, the Overland yeah. train. Yeah. And the Overland train runs out of Adelaide at the crack of dawn, takes all day, and runs out of Melbourne to Adelaide. Yeah. And that was good. I mean, I decided to go first class, so nice comfy seat and a really nice coach, and there's a kind of dining coach yeah. as well, a couple of beers. <laughs> um, I have to say, the journey itself is a little bit samey in the middle, as in it's yeah. just paddock after paddock, but then the then the drop down into Adelaide with the Murray River, I think. Yep, and then through the hills. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you see the city emerge on your left from a great height, and then it just drops down, and that's a really cool way of getting into Adelaide because I timed it so that I could go and see the Adelaide 500 yep. and the festival was on as well. Yes, there's a lot going on in Adelaide at that there time of year. There was a lot going on so, and I'd never been there before so I had budgeted uh, just over a week there. Um, so yeah, Cairns yeah. to Adelaide on the land. On trains. Combination yeah. of trains and cars and uh, really enjoyed it. So what's the attraction for you travelling by train in a situation like that? Um, I think the fact that you you don't have to worry about where you're going. Yep. You know, uh, I mean, I, clearly I'm a car fan, mm. but and as I say, I, I covered a fair few miles driving from Cairns to Rockhampton. That was three days worth. Oh wow! Um, and I was kind of booking places as I was going down and exploring as well. But the, uh, ultimately, you know where you're going, but you don't know what's in between. Yeah. Okay. So Coffs Harbour. I mean, I've heard of Coffs Harbour because it's been a base for the World Rally Championship in the past. But when you're all of a sudden on the train, you peer across and it's early evening, the sun's starting to set and you realise that the line is probably metres from the sea and there's, there's waves lapping and you think, oh, I didn't know about this place. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like its own tour guide in a way. Uh, and I also just, I like the engineering side of railways. I mean, you know, I, I come from the country where railways were born. Yeah. Isabel, Isabel Kingdom Brunel and all that. And the fact that landscapes can offer a real challenge. How do we get from here to here when there's a stonking great mountain in the way mm. and a river? Um, and, you know, the bridges, the means of gaining height or losing it, all that sort of thing fascinates me because in order to shift either people or freight from one area to another, I think railroads, railways are awesome. And just the, 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 the sheer, I don't know, brazenness of kind of going, right, we're going we to build this thing, even if it takes... 20 years to do it and the sense of achievement at the end just must have been awesome <laughs> fantastic that's that sounds really really cool i've never actually done any significant railroad travel um the the big trips that i've done have been by car or by plane so i think um the biggest trip i've done by car was driving myself from adelaide to melbourne um for last year's sandown event yep. um so i did that uh and that, and that takes eight and a half hours wow yeah so it's a pretty pretty significant trip to do just by yourself um i think you'll like this i, I did it in my car which is an alfa romeo giulietta very nice yeah i do like that it's yes. a, yeah it's quite a quite a nice car i've been really enjoying it the other slight advantage about trains if you fancy a nap there's no problem yeah, exactly. 40 winks and there's no risk of any you know <laughs> yeah. near-death experience you can wake up and you go okay where are we now so yeah and you can have a beer that that would be a good plus, yeah. Mm -hmm. I might have to investigate train travel now. So you mentioned last year dropping down into the Adelaide 500. Is that your first V8 Supercars event as well? 
it wasn't my first voyage to Ricardo Bay because I came to the Bathurst 1000 in 2010, which didn't start well at all for Fabian Coulthard. That was the one where he entered the chase backwards and rolled several times yeah. into, the, uh, into the gravel. But it was a good year. Uh, Lounsey and Mark Scaife, I think Scaife's final victory here. Uh, yes, Cup. it would be. Uh, and I actually caught those two when they were busy signing autographs out in the paddock. So yep. they'd done the podium, they'd done the press conference, and then they were still giggling, not believing what they'd just done. Um, and yeah, that was a good year because uh, I did here at Bathurst. The following weekend was the MotoGP at Phillip Island. Yep. And we finished it with the Gold Coast race at yes, Paradise, yes. which was V8, the next V8 yeah. supercar meeting two weeks later. So those were my first experiences of seeing supercars for real, having followed the championship for 10 years or more from home. So it felt, that felt like my first time at Donington Park when I went to watch the 1998, I think it was, uh, British Touring Car Championship yeah, okay. where they had Volvos and Audis yes. and Renault Megane, uh, Renault um, Lagunas. And the like Nissan Primera and Primera. Mondeos and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I was actually familiar with the 98 Championship because I raced here as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I think it was Ricard Rydell and Jim Richards won that race in the Volvo S40, which yeah, I still yeah. have a poster of in my room at home. So. But there's something about having, you know, followed a championship religiously on screen and then you see all the cars for real. Mm. I literally had goose pimples. Yeah. Because you think, oh, there's that one and there's that one as well. They're all here and they're all about to race in front of me and you just feel like a kid in a sweet shop. Mm. That was similar to my experience at the, the Asian Le Mans series at the Bend. You know, after spending five, six years following ACO prototypes and seeing them into, in the flesh at effectively my home track, that yes. was such Very a special. surreal experience. Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from with that. Um, yeah, so how, how did you rate the, the races in Adelaide? Uh, especially in the conditions that we had there, because it was almost warmer than what we've experienced in here. Well, in fact, it was 40 degrees uh, that entire weekend uh, in Adelaide last year. So how did you rate that experience versus Bathurst and the Gold Coast? Yeah, uh, very different. Obviously, you know, the heat was a factor, mm. and thankfully I had access to a very cool media room so I could keep escaping into there. But then again, if I wanted to explore the outer reaches of the circuit, it's not a huge footprint, I realise, mm. but there's a little bit of a walk if you want to go and see... Uh, the staircase, for yeah. instance, you know, which I just, again, I've watched that uh, so many times and I needed to spend some time on those those 90 degree bends to realise how tight they are. Mm. Um, and the second day, I was kind of willing to spend all day outside on the track and just realise where all the nooks and crannies were. And, you know, I was the guy going up to the to the security people going, can I walk through here? <laughs> oh, you can't really, you need to go this way instead. But I didn't want to miss a vantage point because yeah. I, I, I just thought, well, when's the next time I'm going to be here at this race meeting? Because um, I've got an extended stay this year, but I'm not going to stay for the Adelaide 500. That seems like a good decision retrospectively because that's now become a World Endurance Championship weekend yeah. where I'm committed to that back home. So uh, that's a good decision, as I say, in hindsight. Um, so, yeah, it, it's warmer. Um, we're, we're in a new regulation set. Yes. So that's... It's not V8s anymore, sadly. They are still supercars, and I know they are V8 powered, but... but yeah, it's a different, different it's regulations. It's a different era, yeah. and, and they still sound great. They still are, I mean, crazy speeds. Um, for touring cars, especially. For touring cars, yeah. Uh, but but I don't think anything's going to quite overtake the, the first time yeah, you see the course. cars for real 
and it was Bathurst as well. Yeah, that must um, be a pretty high mark to, to be. Yeah, totally. But 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 as far as the street tracks concerned, you know, I was well knowledgeable of the of the Grand Prix that used to run there. I know on a slightly different configuration, but the staircase still existed. So there's history there, mm. and there was that um, race of a thousand years yes, as well. Yes. So I realised, you know, cool, what what would it would be like if if prototypes could ever come back in? Mm. And imagining, I mean, I've I've watched that I've watched that race. Uh, on various streaming sites, so I know what it was like. But, but can you imagine the modern day prototypes around Adelaide? That would, that would just be, be mental. Yeah, scale. yeah, that would be an absolute dream. Um, I don't know if this is going to make you feel just a little bit old, but I was actually born the same year that the F1 had its last race here, and so I was actually even too young to be aware of racing okay. when the race of a thousand years happened. So I had to catch up on that. Yeah, yeah, which is well, it was a great race, and I very much enjoyed that they did that. But it was such a shame that I was. Too young to experience it. Indeed. Mm. So that was New Year's no New, New Year's Eve, Eve to the year two thousand. So it was planned to run until midnight two thousand and one, but they called it a bit short in the end. Yeah. Okay. Which is a bit a bit of a shame. Um, are there any any other tracks around the world that are your bucket list tracks either to or bucket list events to broadcast or to to attend as a fan? Uh, yes. Um, I was talking to at Daytona. We were talking to um, a few NASCAR fans who were trying the Rolex 24 out for the first time. Yep. And they'd been to obviously a number of NASCAR races. And, and I've been I've been to Sebring now, I've been to the to Daytona, I've been to Cota, the current venue for for the American Grand Prix. Yep. And people somebody said, Well, where would you like to go next? It's got to be the Bristol night race for the NASCAR. <laughs> Bristol. Event. Bristol. Because Bristol is just a, a massive and a great height of grandstand. Um, and it's just a gladiatorial bowl. Yeah. Um, what's that? About a half a mile around. And in the good old days of forty-three cars, there's just nowhere to hide in a place like that. It's a bit like running a twenty-four hour race at Daytona. Yeah. You know, it's all laid out in front of you. And again, the possibility for mistake is so so costly. Um, beyond that, I'd like to do Watkins Glen. I'd like to do Petit Le Mans. Um, I'm a big fan of Sonoma, Sears Point, yes, yes. in California. I think that's, again, for the NASCAR race, I think that's great. Um, there are many of them, and, and there used to be a sports car track around Vegas, I think. Ooh, okay, that's yeah. pushing Amer my knowledge. American Le Mans Series race at Vegas, which, again, was one I'd, I'd love to have gone to see, because... That was a case of a little bit like Formula E does now in that they're taking the racing to the people. Mm. So many people go to Vegas for other reasons, some of them legal, some of them not. And if you can just present people who are just there with a motor race, I think that could be really engaging. It's a little bit like what they've done this weekend with the Track to Town yeah. event, whereby, I mean, most people in Bathurst know there's a racetrack up the road there, but could they tell you what cars are racing there? Probably not. So let's just put them in front of the people. And they'll go, well, okay, mm. that's a Porsche, that's a Mercedes, yeah. I recognise these cars, why don't we go and watch? Mm. I think that's brilliant. And especially at the moment with the Australian GT series uh, suffering a bit of uh, lack of numbers, to get these GT cars in front of people at an event like this is, is a pretty big deal. What do you think of the town, Attractor Town uh, as a concept? This is, you've seen it for two years now. Yes, I much prefer it with all the cars as mm. we have this year, um, but... You know, I realise it's kind of baby steps. It's very SRO because yeah. they do it at Spa as well. Okay. So they take the cars down 
is it is it Spa itself or is it Malbody? I can't remember. But they take them out on the old circuit where you used to turn left at Lacan yeah. and down to the to the nearest town. I mean, Spa is that large of a track even these days, over seven kilometres. It goes from one town to, yeah, one it to another. Yeah, it connects um, Spa, uh, Malmody, and Shop, yeah, yeah. and uh, and Stablo as well, doesn't That's it? Right. Yeah. yeah, yes, um, and the Master King. Uh, which I've driven through because that still exists, Master King still exists to drive your road car on and you think the speeds that they must have been going through here in you know Formula 1 days of the 60s and 70s yeah with, with nothing on the side hay bales to stop you pretty much yeah, yeah. and then a tree you know or a sign a big, big advertising hoarding um, yeah uh, and that's where you know the modern day simulators and, and uh, whatever console game you wish the modern, the kind of fashionable thing to do now is to include the, the current Grand Prix track, but also include the old, one, the old yeah. one. And that's really educational to me. It's kind of, you know, you work out exactly where it is, and then I'm lucky enough to be able to go to Spa and, and drive the thing, and it's another world. It, well, it is literally another world because of the health and safety that we're now under. Um, I've forgotten what your original question was. <laughs> um, I think I've forgotten what your original question was. So all I could think about when you when you started talking about putting old tracks in video games, I've, I've actually done some sim racing commentary um, based in Australia for a few Australian series, and something that I got involved with was actually a group who did a four decades of Imola. So one of the, the series, they uh, one of the um, games, they've got uh, a bunch of different iterations of the Imola circuit yeah. and a bunch of different iterations of Formula 1 cars. So they did one a week uh, of the different uh, Imola um, configurations in the different cars. So shout out to Apex Rear Wing for giving me that opportunity. I'll just give them a quick plug. Um, Why not? Yeah. yeah. I haven't even forgotten the question. So I noticed uh, you were looking more at races in America as tracks you wanted to get to. Is that because you've ticked off things in Europe or because Europe, it feels closer, feels more attainable? Uh, it's probably just because I was there last week. And oh, yeah, that, that was the conversation we had. But further afield, um, Suzuka okay. has got to be there. And the Asian Le Mans series is going to Suzuka, I believe. Next year, yes. Calendar. So that's very cool. Buriram. I've called races at Buriram for Super GT, but actually never been there because that's always been UK based. Like yeah, with, yeah. Um, um, with uh, Nismo TV, correct? With Nismo TV. Yeah, yeah. With uh, with Sam Collins. Yeah. Uh, so Buriram is is a crazy fast track, particularly mm. when Super GT was there. So I'd like to go there. It's difficult to get to, I hear, but but well worth it once you you've arrived. Um, and then. Whew, I mean, there are many others. Uh, you know, if you offered me a new racetrack, then I'd probably be there like a flash. I've done a few in the Middle East, so Gas Marine is yeah. most impressive for the Gulf 12 hour in the past. Um, what about Dubai? Um, you were there just this year when they had the uh, aborted, rained out uh, 24 hours of Dubai. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, yes, that um, is not designed for rain, <laughs> no. long enough. And I think all the times I've been there, we've had possibly a passing shower on one of the days it wasn't the race day but I, it has rained a bit previously but i'm pretty sure i wasn't part of the team then so this was completely unknown to me and uh, we knew the rain was coming in didn't quite expect it to be to that extent and it was just relentless now the track could obviously only deal with a certain amount of rain we'd had some in qualifying and they did a really good job with some tankers that not only can obviously spew out the liquid or whatever it's carrying but they can also hoover up water uh, so they were driving tankers into areas of the track and desperately trying to soak the thing up but then when the rain hit in the race um it was immediately, biblical. Yeah. yeah it was biblical that's a great word for it immediately 
we went caution because there were cars spinning out and suddenly being damaged. And then, I, you know, you take your eyes off it for 15 minutes and look back to the pit lane and it's all of a sudden under 30 centimetres of water. Wow. And the pit uh, lane's the top of the circuit as well, isn't yes. it? So that's that's serious flooding, yeah. Yes. And I knew it was bad because a lot of the, the high-end teams had brought machinery to automatically bail out their garage space. Yeah. So this stuff's, again, sucking up the water and spewing it out into the paddock area. I thought, well, that water's only going to be drained away for a short time, and then that, the drains will become full, and then where the, where's the water going to go? He went into the pit lane. So you've got water you know, going up around people's legs in the pit lane. You have um, cars. I mean, talk about aquaplaning. Mm. They were disappearing into the, into the lakes that were forming on the track. So um, Creventic, who were on that championship, had little choice but to, to red flag it yeah. and hope that it was going to cease. Because we needed it to stop raining, but we also then needed to do something with the, with with the water, water yeah. that had already accumulated. And sadly, they gridded all the cars up four abreast for this red flag period and didn't uh, foresee the fact that right next to where all the cars were, there were the, uh, the metal gates that opened on the pit wall. Yeah. And the water was able to seep right underneath those to where all the race cars were sitting. So I was asleep in the grandstand because we knew that we weren't going to get another announcement from race control until 7 a.m for a further update, brilliant chance to sleep yep. in a, an endurance race. We never really get that opportunity. Uh, and a race car fired up at 4.55 Sunday morning. They can't be restarting this race now. I mean, look at the state of the track. And unfortunately, that was water so uh, so deep, this time on the race track, that cars were having to be started up just to be moved to a slightly mm. higher point on the start-finish start track. Straight. So. It was just a disaster, yeah. and, and we kind of saw it coming in. I mean, the, the, the local guys who who actually weren't racing um, for Ogilvy Racing, now I'm trying to think of their name, which has suddenly escaped me, the three brothers who used to race in TCR, uh, and we had them in, um, in the commentary box to chat to us as well. Anyway, those guys were great, and it was the first time they hadn't done a race in 10 years. Yeah. I think they were kind of grateful that they hadn't entered because of the way it turned out. But they, they had said to us, um, when the rain arrives in Dubai, you really know about it, and that was the case. That was, yeah. and, and I just hope that you know we're looking ahead in the future to well. I mean, is it climate change? I read a few articles to, to suggest actually that the officials there had tried to make it rain in Dubai yeah. because they'd been in such a barren spell of, of any wet stuff at all. So cloud seeding, that is a thing, yeah. creating rainfall. I just hope it's not going to be a January event yeah. every single year because then that, that does really pose problems for the Dubai 24 hours. Prior to that, always been a good race. You know, Black Falcon turning out, uh, some of the real key guys within the GT3 world, Audi, WRT are always there, you know, and, and this long success of German manufacturers of Dubai. And the traditional start to a motorsport season, it was mm. just really sad to have that taken yeah. away from us. Uh, is that the worst conditions you've ever seen at a racetrack? I think it's got to be up there. Yeah. yeah. The only thing that I can think of that might even be close is the year that it hailed at the Nürburgring and they had to red flag it. That's the only thing off the top of my head I can think of. We had ice. Yeah. Yes, halfway around the lap and cars, GT3 cars that couldn't even scrabble for grip at walking speed mm. to get back. So yeah, they were that stuck was on pretty, slicks, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the, 
the, the track, the hail came down and instantly froze the track. Mm. And this is what I mean about motorsport being unpredictable. Yeah, you know, exactly. I don't think I've ever seen a completely frozen track. I don't think I've ever seen a racetrack where the pit lane, more suitable thing to get down the pit lane would be a boat or a canoe. Mm. So already I've, you know, there is a couple of firsts that I may never see again. We all may never see again in a motorsport event. In terms of race meetings I've been at, yeah, probably that's it. Although I, I'm now remembering uh, in supercars in the Sydney street race, yeah. right, all of a sudden pelted it down the rain that was, and think, everybody ended up in the wall. Yeah, I think that was 2015 or 2014 from memory. Oh no, I think the one you're talking about would be 2010. Where I think had, it was later on in the season, yeah. We yeah. talked about 2010 when I was here for, Bath, for Bathurst and for Supercar. Yeah, I think it was the finale of that year. Yeah, where they had um, Mark Winterbottom, Jamie Winkup and uh, James Courtney all in the championship battle, the top three positions all in the wall at the same corner. Uh, yeah, that's that was certainly one of the the bigger moments in the sport in the last mm -hmm. ten years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that was pretty pretty up there. Damn, that's a cool one. Um, what are your favourite events that you get to go to each year? Uh, either some of the big ones like Le Mans or even some of the more slow, smaller ones. Do you have a pre preference between the two? Last year we did. The 24 hours of Le Mans, followed by the 24 hours of the Nürburgring. No, yeah. And there were elements of Le Mans last year which, I don't know, left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, purely because of which Toyota won. Yeah. When I felt the other one that didn't take victory was actually the quicker, particularly, especially as Mike Conway's stint in the early yeah. part of that race was I think just you, unbelievable. I think you share that sentiment with basically all the, the fan base that yeah. I've interacted with, yeah. Also, it was a Ferrari anniversary year because I think their first victory at Le Mans was 1949. Well, the first time the Ferrari turned out at that race was yeah. 49. So we were in an anniversary year in 2019 and Ferrari won GT Pro. And prior to that, Porsche won again yeah. in one of their anniversary years. So I was just starting to become a little bit skeptical about how Le Mans is run. Now, it might be entirely coincidental. You know, I'm, not, I'm not one for conspiracy theories. But I just came away from... Lassart thinking, I'm not sure about this now. And then, you know, the next thing on our menu was, was the Nürburgring 24 hours, which just delivered in spades. Yeah. And my faith in motor racing was back up there again. And I came away from those two weeks thinking, I love Le Mans. It's unique. It's the original 24 hour race. But I still think the Nordschleife for 24 hours is just my favorite yeah. in terms of an endurance race. And and you get the sort of lineup that you do at the Bathurst Twelve Hour these days. Now you know you name a personality as a GT three racing driver, and they have to be there. Yeah, you know? uh, they're, they're all there. They're all assembled. And the fact that you know you're talking three grids released separately at what is it two minute intervals, um, and you're hitting traffic basically on lap two yeah. around the Nordschleife, and it's relentless. Um, and there's something just old school about it. Uh, I think everything's old school about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think which Porsche it was now. Was it Matty Campbell who ended up down the barrier going into uh, Schwedenkreuz because he all of a sudden hit the barrier? He did a wall of um, TCR cars yeah. off the track and it was raining and he clattered down the Armco barrier, got back on the track and just, and just kept going. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking you'd never see that at Le Mans. Well, I can't actually. We might have seen that at Le Mans, but it's just it's Le Mans on steroids. I think it's just another level. So I came away from that meeting thinking this is still my favourite. Yeah. 
And I know that's going to be sacrilege to Le Mans fans, but that's just where I am right now. Fantastic. Oh, that's that's really cool, really cool to think. Because, yeah, of course, having them back-to-back -back would have been such a stark difference between the the absolute peak of what sports cars is versus... Completely. Yeah, the, the almost club... Oh, that's yeah. club-like attitude, yeah. Like, yeah. how many race events do you go to where nine teams tear a garage? Precisely. Yeah. yeah, there's no room to work at all. And, and um, like you say, you, yeah, they're all having to work around each other. You've got the time pit stops, and they're still filling the cars with the pistol grip yeah. things that you find down the local supermarket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's unconventional 24 hour racing, but that's something I sort of embrace. Beautiful. Um, what about this event? Where do you rate this one, uh, especially last year after last year's race? Just epic. Uh, this, on the Radio Show Limited Network, we always have a little um, prize giving at the end of every calendar year. Um, up and coming driver, you know, young young driver, favorite driver of the year, um, favorite team, yeah. favorite non-driver, and then and the other one is favorite race. Yeah. And my favorite race was the Bathurst 12 hour of the whole year because of, well, the way it developed, obviously in the early stages, I still love that first hour, yeah. which there's no testing in the darkness at all. Your first look at the track, with no light, is lap one of the race. Amazing. Uh, and yeah, just the, the crescendo. Because I think two years ago in 18, which was my first one covering it, it was a real disappointment because it was a horrendous crash at the top yes, of the hill. That was the, the red flag year, yeah. It was red flagged and it was called early. And actually, that was gravitation towards a really close yeah. finish. If I, if None of us really knew whether there was an Audi in a good position. Yeah, it was the WRT Audi and the Sun Energy One Mercedes, Mercedes. and they were on a slightly, con they were on a conservative strategy, and then you had the Black uh, the, the Craft Bamboo Porsche, the Manti Porsche, the Competition Motorsport Porsche, and the Black Swan Porsche all ready to pounce, yes. and yeah, we, we missed out on a great finish yes, there, if either of those two had run out of fuel, then, then yeah, it just threw yeah. the whole thing up yeah. in the air. I was really mad about that, because Porsche are my, my favourite team, and not only that, uh, as part of our activities on the subreddit, we have a fantasy endurance competition. Yeah. So we have like, you know, you pick your car from each class and then you, there's a point scoring system. Then whoever wins at the end gets, you know, a, a bit of uh, like bragging rights over everyone. Of course. So I had the, it was looking like that race that I had the opportunity to go uh, one, two, three, four in terms of Porsches at Bathurst, which would have been awesome to me, but also the class winner in every class. Uh, <laughs> So unfortunately, no. unfortunately, it didn't work out, and I was very mad about that. But yeah, that was looking to be one of the greatest finishes of the race. Yeah. But we got we got one instead last year. We did, and that made up for it. But you know, you leave leave your first Bathurst twelve hour, and you think, ah, that was so close to being good. And yeah. although I enjoyed it, you know, we just don't want to when well, we don't want to see crashes yeah. like that, cars sideways across the track, and on blind left handers. Uh, but just, I mean, last year just lived up to all expectation and beyond, yeah. you know, and to see Campbell basically driving a GT3 car like it was a Carrera Cup machine and some of the moves he pulled off were just electric. And, um, yeah, I, again, it was a similar experience to going to the Nürburgring then later on last year, whereby you're just, the excitement for racing is pulsing through your veins and is for the next couple of weeks. Cool. Uh, we'll track back to this event this year. Um, we may mention that uh, one of the reasons that we had, uh, well, sorry, the, the big crash that we had at the end of the 2018 race was caused in part by traffic. Um, there's a reduced entry list for the non-GT3 cars this year. We've got two uh, GT4 cars, a BMW and a Mercedes, yeah. and then four of the Invitational Mark cars. Um, 
which is continuing a trend of smaller entries for the Invitational class and broader entry for the GT3 ranks. What are your thoughts on how that's panned out for this event and uh, whether or not you'd like to see that continue or you'd like to see the, the multi-class aspect remain at Bathurst? No, I, I would definitely like to see more cars in more classes. So, you know, okay, you can have a motor race with just two cars, mm. but for Class C, GT4, it needs a few more. I like the fact they're different, you know, so as you say, you've got a BMW and a Mercedes, but it's just, they're all collected actually in a very similar garage space, mm. the four mark cars and the two. Which I think are directly below us in fact. Are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you just think, ah, they missed, there's a missed opportunity here, but that does seem to be the way that SRO like things to go. You know, think about the Spa 24. Yeah. And that's all GT3 cars now. Whereas the history of Spa 24, I mean, it was a touring car yeah. race, you know, in the early days, but you had all sorts of different classes within that. And uh, it becomes, if, it, if it's all GT3, and this event could very easily become all GT3 next year or the year after, it's very formulaic. Yeah. And I know that another idea was to to limit the stints. Yeah, there was the, the release, I think it was late last year, that they were going to li do limited stint lengths, limited stint amounts consecutively and timed pit stops. Yeah. Um, but that actually got pulled back after the massive fan and media outcry. Well, that's good. Yeah. As long as the fan power keeps going, mm. and I'm sure it will, but it's, that's a question then of, of Stefan Rotella and all his stuff listening to his customer listening to his audience not yeah. his customers but his audience you know the people that actually consume this stuff um now you know i know also that it's trying to, to draw in a supercar audience a little yes. bit as well and it serves as a nice supercar preview too um but everyone's going to realize that sports car racing gt3 racing is very different and part of it, part of the narrative is is how you've attacked it from a strategic point of mm. view. You know, you could do a short run or you could get a driver in for a triple stint if you wish, you know, um, because of the time that you might be able to save in the pit stop, because you're trying to get a car in front of another or behind another. All that is part of a long distance, 12 hour in this case race. And if you, if you then write the rule set so it's so constricting, it just becomes boring, I mm. think. So I think you've got to be careful where you're going to go in terms of direction with this event in the near future. And yes, it needs more classes. I mean, but the problem with that is you've then got to drum up the interest because I know of other championships who like lots of classes and sometimes we get classes of one car. One car, yeah. I think Creventic sometimes suffers that sort of uh, issue where they have a car come in that yeah. only competes by now, itself. Now, yeah. okay, you can go, right, well, we've got one car there in that class and one car there in that class. Let's just combine them. Fine, you can do that. Um, but I don't think Class C is sustainable when you've got two cars mm. going up for it. The Mark cars are great. I think they're a big fan favourite. They sound awesome. Mm. They look a bit like a Ford Mustang, but I know Ryan McLeod isn't a fan of people saying that. But they, 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 you know, from a spectator point of view, they look great. They sound superb. They sound even better. Um, so let's get six of those. Yeah. And yeah, GT4 is a real growth area so i don't understand why there's not been more interested well uh, i can maybe paint a bit of a picture in that in the the australian gt series is not really got a lot of interest in at the moment either so there's a real lack of pickup in amateur ranks 
um, the people who would be buying these GT4 and GT3 cars because the the series that they would be racing at the moment doesn't really have that much value in competition. Um, so they'd much rather race in Carrera Cup, uh, like AM classes in Carrera Cup yeah. or something along those lines. Um, so it is a it is a Australia and from what I've heard as well in Asia kind of uh, problem that GT4 hasn't really been picked up. Because I know GT4 in your neck of the woods is booming. Like everyone's in a GT4, GT4 car in over in the UK. Yes, yeah. A couple of years back when British GT became a 50-50 split. Oh, wow. Um, and there was an idea that, you know, a couple of years' time, GT4 would actually become the top class. I don't think that that would necessarily be a good thing because I still think the GT3 cars, because they are so spectacular, still deserve, you know, to have a... A good position in that championship, but I also realised that you know it's a lot of it's down to the financial yeah. aspect. How much money do these teams have to spend? You also you know for a, a hot shoe driver in one stint of the race, you've got to have someone bringing the money, the gentleman driver. And GT three cars are not cheap. No, they're not. GT fours clearly, well, much more affordable mm. and still very rewarding. I think to the to the gentleman driver. Cool. Uh, back on this race, uh, were you aware of the origins of, of the Bathurst 12-hour as a as a race in the Australian motorsport landscape? Yeah, um, back to the early 90s, I think. Yeah, 1991. Mazda RX-7s. Yeah, it used to be a production car event. Yes. Um, so they've since, um, since the GT3 era has come into Bathurst, they've since moved the production car aspect to a separate event at Easter, which is the six hours, which still gets a lot of uh, a lot of fanfare as well. Um, but it was only it was only two thousand and fifteen was the last year in which they had production car classes at the twelve hour. Mm. Um, and if you want a, a little fun fact to tell your Radio Le Mans friends or your RSL friends, um, Matt Campbell's first race at the Bathurst twelve hour was in that twenty fifteen event in a Fiat Bath. Lovely. Yeah. Super. Yeah. I bet so, he enjoyed that. Yeah. So, like, can you imagine Fiat Baths and other, like, tiny uh, cars racing on the same track as GT3s yeah. on a track like this? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's mouth-watering as well. I think I'm right in saying that this is the 10th year that GT3 cars yes. have been part of it. The first event for GT3 cars was in 2011, um, which I think was won by Audi um, with Daryl O'Young and I think... Christopher, one of the Christophers, I'm going to say. Haza? Haza or Mies. Mies. Um, yeah. It could have easily have been both, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Got to go back and look at that. But yeah, so the 10 year, uh, the 10th edition for GT3 is at Bathurst this weekend. Mm. Yeah. Well, finally, before before I let you go, we've been talking now for just on 50 minutes, which is pretty a pretty good chat. Um, something that we love to do on uh, endurance chat is predictions for the race. So I want to ask you, uh, Johnny Palmer to give me your top three in uh, the, the GT3 class and then a winner in the next two classes if you can um, okay see having not seen any sessions yet obviously because it's Thursday of the weekend yeah. it's so tough to know who's going to be quick but I think uh, there's definitely going to be a Porsche there yeah. and uh, the fan favourite has got to be the Bamba Van Tour Lambs car I would think that's um, the number one car number yeah. one Porsche yeah so but I don't think it's going to be a Porsche back-to-back victory. So let's put okay. them in second. Yeah. Um, when I'm, are you also, next, then? I'm also interested in how the, should we say, the bigger cars will get on. So the Bentley, the new Continental, first time here. Second time here. They had their first race here last year. 
Yes, they did. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yes, that's right. fine. Um, but what I'm interested in is the fact that the rule set has changed so that now the brand new cars for 2020 can be run here. So that's <laughs> yeah. the reason why we've got, I think, is it three Evos? Yes. Uh, Mercedes. Craft Bamboo, Black Falcon, uh, Group M, and AAA Race Engine. Yeah. Um, so having watched the new Mercedes run at Dubai, admittedly it was very wet, but the first part of the race was dry. They're not quite there as, as well as the old cars. Okay. So I think it's going to be an older car. Are they good enough for victory, though? Mm. No, I'm going to put a Mercedes in third, but I don't know which one. Okay. <laughs> uh, then who takes the win? Who takes the win? Who takes the win? It's got to be an Audi. Audi? I think, yeah. So you got one of the Valvoline cars. They're the, the three pro cars. You've got the two, which is... Um, uh, ooh, who is in the two? I think it's Christopher Haaser... Uh, I, I know the number another number twenty two cars better, which is uh, Mies, Tander, and um, we need an entry list in front of. Yeah, us. I know, right? Where, where is this? Uh, uh, and the third car is Matteo Drudy, uh, Wickelhock, and Kelvin Vanderlinder, which is the triple two. I remember, See, Drudy's all right. Mm. I, bet, I bet a lot of people here haven't heard of Matteo. Yeah, I, when when we were doing our preview, uh, we had to look him up and. Basically, list off his Wikipedia. Done some LMP3 racing yeah. in Europe, um, but uh, and it's pretty nifty in a single seater as well. Um, but I don't think he's got the relevant experience around here. Yep. So the 22. Let's go with the 22. Let's go with the 22. Which I'm, is... I've, I've been a Garth Tanner fan for a little while, so. And he has got possibly the second most experience around this track. Yeah. Um, of the of the entry the race entries, um, probably second after Lowndes, of course. Yeah. Um, because Lowndes Lowndes has been racing here. Almost as long as I've been alive. <laughs> his, yeah. His first race was in 1994. So we pulled up the entry list. So the number two was Dries Van Tor, Christopher Haas, and Frederick Verviche. Um, and then the, pretty strong. And yeah, and then the 22 is uh, Garth Tander, Christopher Meese, and Mirko Bortolotti. See, Mirko, again, is so rapid, but he's, he's, the... he's getting used to that Audi rather than the Lambo that he yeah. drove for many, many years. Didn't, oh. didn't he just win Daytona in GTD, though? Or was that... Oh, no, he was racing in the Audi, uh, not the winning... He finished uh, third on the road, yeah. 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 But they were good. Mm. And there's not a great deal of difference between the Lamborghini and the and the Audi. Obviously, it's, in terms of aero, it's very different. But it, it basically runs the same engine and they're both mid-engine. So I'm sure, you know, it doesn't take a lot to adapt from a Huracan to, to an Audi R8. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm almost tempted here. now to go back to the other Valvoline car. It'll be Audi. It'll be Audi? Okay. I'll, I think. I'll let you off the you hook do with not, that. I never do predictions. Okay. Oh, well, I thought I'd put you on the spot. Um, any any comments on Pro-Am or the amateur, the Silver Classes? I need an entry list in front of me. Um, well, here's <laughs> one I have, um, which you're going to have to scroll through. Okay. Um, so I think, for me, the, the one that definitely sticks out is the number 12 car. The David Calvert-Jones, uh, Roman Dumas and Jackson Evans car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jackson's really quite good. He's mm. he's come on well of late. That's the that's the other Alabama motorsport car. Yes, that is the the one the that Ned's has been backing. traditionally the icebreak car. Um, but this year is running under Ned's sponsorship. Yeah. Um, that car's actually got a second place overall. Uh, in twenty seventeen with Matt Campbell at the wheel uh, alongside Alex Davison, Pat Long, and David Calvert Jones. Yes. So I actually think that lineup is 
good enough yeah. for an overall win. See, in our little commentary booth, yeah. we often get the icebreak girls coming in with the, with the cold coffee. So I'm wondering whether we're going to get some Ned Australian whiskey this year. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be dangerous. <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, go, let's go with that one. Beautiful. Um, and I'll let you off the hook for the Silver Cup, because okay. even I'm not well, too well versed in the Silver Cup. Um, so thank you very much, Tony Palmer, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the weekend. That's a pleasure. Thank you. So there you have it. There was my chat with Johnny Palmer. I'd like to once again thank Johnny for being so generous with his time. Uh, it was uh, fantastic to be able to work near those guys and interact with those guys over the weekend. And I'd like to also extend a thank you out to Eve and John Hindor of Radio Le Mans for allowing Johnny that time to do that interview with me. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Stephen Kilby for uh, being my sort of manager over the weekend, as well as uh, Skippy Hall for keeping me <laughs> caffeinated up and on my toes uh, for the weekend and uh, the likes of Richard Crow and Jackie for uh, yeah just just taking care of me over the weekend it was a very intense experience to start with working in the media center and to have those guys be so welcoming and so kind to me and to sort of encourage me to be in there and doing the work uh, was was very very comforting it made it a, a lot more it made it, it made the experience a lot smoother than what it could have p potentially have been. Um, unfortunately, because of the work I was doing, I wasn't able to do a campfire chat like we have done in previous years with the likes of Reddit Worst Night and Kiwi Chris, uh, who uh, Reddit Worst Night was, was actually at the mountain. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't manage to catch him except for a brief moment in the paddock. Um, so missed out on doing that this year, but. Fingers crossed we'll be able to do something similar for that in the years coming. Uh, finally, I'd once again like to thank all of our listeners uh, for giving me the platform once again to go out and do these sort of things and have this basis of uh, production behind me in order to elevate me to the stage where I can actually be in the media center and not feel like an absolute quack. Uh, so it is because of you guys, I say every single time, because of you guys that I get to go out and do these things and make this sort of content for you. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure seeing, being able to do that for this community. Um, so I hope you enjoyed. Uh, history will show that Johnny was very incorrect in his picks, but that's okay. All of us were. Uh, so if you have missed the event, make sure you catch up on it uh, because it was a very, very tense race right until the very end. Uh, and we will have our normal Bathurst 12-hour wrap-up tied in with our Daytona 24-hour wrap-up coming along some point over the weekend. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Michael Zalavari. Peace out. <laughs> <laughs>